John chapter 4 is uh, our text. John chapter 4. As we're turning there, I I do want to ask those of you that were not able to uh, be here last week for whatever reason, uh, uh, if you would, uh, and you didn't hear the message last week on live stream, uh, if you would uh, sign up for a CD of our our service uh, and our message last week, uh, which was called Understanding Christian Persecution. I, I really felt it in my heart. There was a message the Lord wanted me to give to this congregation. And um, uh, in actuality, I, I feel it was one of great, great importance for all of us to understand this issue of persecution in these last days. And so um, I would encourage you, if you haven't signed up for it, please please sign up for it. It was last, last Sunday and last Sunday's message. So if you would, sign up for that. And... Um, and listen to it, please. I don't normally do that. Uh, I don't do commercials for my studies, but I felt that this was an important one for the church. John chapter 4. I'd like to begin by just reading the first 14 verses of this passage, and then we'll get into our study. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Shall we pray? Father, we ask this morning that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this day. That in that pouring out of your spirit, you would fill us with your wisdom and understanding. 
that you would give us, Lord God, insight into this truth that we are learning about today. How we ask, Father, that this passage would indeed come alive in our hearts and in our minds, in our words, as well as in our actions. Lord, have your way this day with us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. As John, the, the apostle, traces out the extraordinary life of our blessed Lord Jesus, it should be of great interest to us how he dealt with different people whom he conversed with and spent time with. In fact, we just spent the last chapter, a few weeks of it, in, 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 in looking at this meeting that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus, a man who was, who was uh, rich and, and, and uh, had a, a great reputation as being a leader in Israel, a spiritual leader, as a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. And yet this man needed to hear the words of Jesus. That unless a man be born again, he cannot see or enter into the kingdom of God. And so this gospel of John is, is probably the greatest work written to help us understand this issue of how Jesus dealt with individuals. There is this wonderful unfolding of Christ's marvelous wisdom as he opens up the word of God to needy souls. We wouldn't have thought that Nicodemus was a needy soul, yet he was very much one who needed to hear the things that Jesus shared with him. And one of the greatest and loveliest of meetings Jesus had was with this Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Another person who had a totally different religious viewpoint, and yet nonetheless she was equally as needy as Nicodemus. Now, Jesus left Judea, we are told in the first verse of our text, that he left Judea, but he left Judea out of necessity. In fact, he left it for John's sake. When you look at the last part of chapter 3 and into into chapter 4, you realize that the crowds were leaving John and coming to Jesus and the Pharisees and the the religionists were, were using that fact to downgrade John's ministry. And the Lord didn't want to create a competitive scene and damage John's ministry. And so he left the area and he returned to Galilee. But as we get into verse 4, I want you to note the words that are used in verse 4. Because there it says, he must needs go to or through Samaria. He must needs go through Samaria. Now, I know that I'm reading from the King James Version of the Bible. Some of your translations may say he needed to go through Samaria. But but I find it very significant that in the King James, it, it uses all the words in the Greek. And the word must is needed here for us to understand. He must needs go through Samaria. Because the word must here means necessity. It means compulsion or destiny. In other words, Jesus was compelled or constrained to go through Samaria for the sake 
of his mission. And I want you to consider, if you will, the usage of the word must in relation to Jesus' ministry. It is, it is quite, quite interesting. We go back to chapter 3 for a moment in verse 14 when Jesus himself says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Must. You see the necessity. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we look at John chapter 9 later on in verse 4 where Jesus says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. I must work the works of him that sent me. This is, this is not something that he weighed out as, as whether to do it or not. It was something that he knew was a necessity. And even in John 10, verse 16, when, when Jesus said, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and that speaking of Gentiles, not what some have written about this passage as meaning, you know, that Jesus had to come to the Americas and be seen as the Mormons teach. No, it just, it, what it means is there's others in the fold who are the Gentiles. Jesus came first to the Jews and then also for the Gentiles. So, another sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. You see, Jew and Gentile. But he must bring the other sheep. And there are a couple of other verses that you can find in the other Gospels. But but the important thing is this necessity. I want to thank the Lord today that he saw the necessity to do what he did, because if he didn't see it as a necessity, we would all be in trouble. You, you see that now? So with that in mind, what is the necessity for us? What must we do? What must we do when called to serve the Lord? What must we do in whatever capacity and ministry God has given us? What must we do? And who then serves as the greatest example for us in ministry and in service? But the Lord Himself, who said to us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom for many. Do, do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life. A ransom for many, and what we have learned from our Lord is what God has called us to do and to be. Servants who serve Him, realizing the necessity of serving the Lord with our lives. And that, to the very end. To the very end. And so Jesus left Judea, to confront a Samaritan woman in a, ta- in a town called Sikar. For this woman, it would be a divine appointment. You know, I said that last night, I said it in first service, and I began to realize, I said, you know, it was a divine appointment. But then again, every person that met Jesus along the way was having a divine appointment. And then I realized, even today, we can have divine appointments with Jesus. As a matter of fact, I really hope that you had one before you came to church this morning. 
I hope that you spend time in prayer, praying for the service, praying for us here, praying that, that God would have his way with us through his word and through his spirit. And, and, and in, in, in that praying that you were having a divine appointment with the Lord. Oh, and by the way, we're supposed to have it every day, aren't we? Okay, so, wow, you're quiet. I wonder if that's saying, oops, I forgot to have my divine appointment with the Lord today. Well, you got the rest of the day, and then you got tomorrow morning. Let's not forget, it is a divine appointment every time we meet with our Lord. So let's get back to Samaria. Samaria was located in the middle of the land between Judea in the south and the Galilee in the north. And during the time of Jesus, if the Jews were traveling to Galilee from Judea or vice versa, they would not go through Samaria. They would not go through Samaria, which was the shortest route, by the way. If you wanted just the shortest route, you went from Judea to the Galilee or the Galilee to Judea, right through Samaria. But they wouldn't do it. They would go east to the Jordan River along the desert strip called the Transjordan. That is where uh, Perea is in that, that region. And then later on, after they would pass Samaria, they would cross over again, whether up in the north or whether down in the south. But nonetheless, they would go twice as far as if they would just go through Samaria. They would go twice as far to get around, uh, to get around Samaria. Why? Why would they do that? Well, if you study the, the Hebrew Scriptures, if you study the Old Testament, the northern kingdom of Israel, when Israel was divided, and there was the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And if you remember this, the kingdom of Judah had good kings and bad kings, but the northern kingdom had only bad kings. They never had a good king. Because in fact, they were rebellious and leaving because they went to worship the Lord the way they wanted to worship and where they wanted to worship. That was one of the major problems. But nonetheless... The northern kingdom of Israel itself, because of its rebellion, was taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. And in fact, the children of Israel were led away, as the scriptures say, with fish hooks in their mouths. Now, if you want to read that, you can read that in Amos chapter 4, verse 2. I don't see anybody writing that down. Write it down. (laughs) And look it up. The idea is you have to check me out. Okay, so Amos 4, 2 tells us about the, the, Israel, uh, the children of Israel being taken almost with fish hooks in their mouths. The Assyrians then brought other captives from different nations. Now here's where the problem begins. The Assyrians brought other captives from other nations into the land where they were, and they intermarried with the Jews who remained there, and these people would become known as the Samaritans. To the Jews, they were half-breeds. Half-breeds and, and, and really looked down upon by the Jews who believed it really essential for them to keep, continue to keep uh, some, some uh, purity amongst themselves. And so the Samaritans were despised. They were despised by the Jews. Well, today it is believed that there are only some 200 Samaritans left, actually. It's a dying breed. And they're dying off because of marrying within their own families and other reasons. But the religion, the religion of the Samaritans, actually is still practiced by those that are still here, as it was in the days of Jesus. I saw a video not too long ago about this 
group of, of people known as the Samaritans today, who actually still sacrifice animals in the area of Samaria. Uh, and, and, and that was a very interesting thing that, that I was seeing. But, but it reminded me, you know, the Jews do not sacrifice animals right now because there's no temple. So, so you realize that the Samaritans continue their practice of, of sacrificing animals, even though they, uh, you know, they, they claim to have their own temple, of course. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. The Samaritans believe in the first five books of Moses, which is the Torah. But they've changed some of the stories around to suit their beliefs. For example, the Garden of Eden was located on Mount Gerizim. Now, Mount Gerizim is in Samaria, and we're going to talk about Mount Gerizim next time. But they believe, the Samaritans believe, that the Garden of Eden was on Mount Gerizim. They also believe that Noah's Ark rested on Mount Gerizim. They also believe that Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Gerizim. <laughs> and they had a temple on Mount Gerizim where they offered sacrifices to God. Now, I mean, that's a busy place, that mountain. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, that's real estate that you probably can't, you know, find any, any room to, to set up your own place, you know, because everybody's there, you know, Moses and Aaron and you know, everybody else. But it's all in the land of Samaria, you see. So these other issues, you know, that and everything else, uh, uh, is what irritated the Jews to the point that they did not even want to get the dust of Samaria on their feet. Have you, have you read that in the scriptures, you know? They would kind of like shake their, their, you know, the dust off their feet. They didn't even want the dust of Samaria on their shoes. And hence, they went around this land to get to their destinations. But John tells us, John tells us that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. It was of a great necessity that Jesus needed to go through this land. Why? Because he had an appointment there to meet someone. An appointment that was made before the foundations of the world were created to a place that very, very, very few Jews would ever go. And we're told in verses 5 and 6 of our text, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sikar or Sukar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. We're not going to cover that a lot today. I'll just mention a few things about Jacob and Joseph, or Jacob in particular. Because in verse 6 it says, Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, we may not be too familiar with the name Sikar or Sukar, but we all have probably heard of Shechem, right? How many have we heard of Shechem? We've heard of Shechem mostly when we did our study in the book of Genesis, both with Abraham as well as with uh, uh, Jacob and Joseph. So these things were happening then in the capital of Samaria. Shechem had become the capital of Samaria. And what is important and more important is, is the biblical history behind this town. Shechem was where Abraham, who was then called Abram or Abram, first came when he traveled from Ur of the Chaldees in, in Mesopotamia, 
which of course, remember, Mesopotamia is the area of what is today known as, as Iraq, but then it was called Babylonia and or Babylon. And we're told in Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7, And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sichem, which is Shechem, unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded an altar, he an altar unto the Lord at, uh, who appeared unto him. And this passage tells us that God first appeared to Abram right there in Shechem. And renewed the promise of giving the land to him and his descendants. And we're told that Abraham or Abraham also built an altar in Shechem and called on the name of the Lord there. And you can see that in verse 8. It was also there that Jacob built an altar and called it. Now this is Jacob, the son of Isaac. Jacob called this altar and this place El Elohe Israel, which means El is the God of Israel. You can see that in Genesis chapter 30, or 33, I should say. So I mentioned that because that establishes the connection then between Jacob and the well that was there at Sukkar, or Sikar. And if you, if you need a little bit of direction, Sikar is, is really just, it's, it's part of Shechem, but just outside the city, where you had to go to get water. So in verse 6 of our text now, we see the... The humanity of Jesus being, being emphasized here. The humanity of Jesus. It is so important for us to realize that Jesus was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. Very important to understand this. And we see that we're told that he was wearied with his journey, and thus he sat on a well, and it was about the sixth hour. So it tells us that Jesus was tired. It tells us that he was thirsty, and he was weary from the journey that he was on. And then it tells us that he was there at the sixth hour of the day, of the day because that, the sixth hour was actually, according to the Hebrew way of considering the daytime, it was the sixth hour was about noontime when the sun was at its highest peak and it was the hottest time of the day. We know a little bit about that here in the, in the desert. You know, it, it, it's, it's just like uh, hot right now. <laughs> And, it's, and it just turned August. It's going to get hotter, I think. So we understand that. And so here's Jesus, the hottest part of the day, at a well, sitting there because he's weary and he's thirsty. And that's an interesting thing. Because the one who has the power to give us rest was himself in his humanity tired and weary. The one who has the resources to give us fountains of living water was the one who said, I'm thirsty. And isn't it interesting how, and wonderfully interesting how, how Jesus has tasted and felt and understood everything that we've ever gone through for us, for our behalf. And he knew it all. Knew it before anyway, but he took it upon himself. And so here he is at this well. And in John 4, verse 7, it says, There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me drink. Now Jesus wasn't being rude, and he wasn't looking down at her because she was a woman, as some people think. They've even tried to put a little tone behind him saying, 
give me some water, you know, that kind of thing. In respect to the language, he, he, he was very respectful to her and just asking her. It was a request for water. And you'll see in a reason why, uh, in a moment, why he, uh, why he said that. One part of the reason was because his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. They weren't there with him. Now, please don't get the idea that he has to have his disciples there to get water for him. He'll get it himself if he wanted. That'd be no problem for Jesus. Jesus was a big, strong man. You know, he used to be a carpenter, worked with stone. He was a stonemason as well. So he could do that. But the point here of these two verses is that it was, it was unusual for anyone in those days to come to a well at the hottest time of the day, although it wasn't rare. But what was rare was for a woman to come to a well alone at that time of day. Women didn't do that. First of all, they would always send the young women to the, to the wells, and they would all go together because together they were, they, you know, they were more protected if they went together. And along the way, they would gossip and do all kinds of stuff, you know, do all that kind of stuff, you know, women do and they go get water. But they, with all due respect, ladies, but anyway, so uh, they would do that and, and, and they would go at, at the earliest time of the day, you know, when the sun's just rising up and, and you can see things and, and you know, things can be seen. It was cool. And then they would have the water for the day, but then at night they would also get water because they needed water at night. So they would go and. And do it right when the sun was starting to go down. But I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't completely down. It was still light of the day. And they would go in the afternoon as well. But they always went together. Very rare for any woman to go by herself. But a woman going to a well by herself. Especially when no one else would be there. Would have indicated that this woman was in fact... A social outcast. As we shall discover the woman that Jesus meets later on. It may be that this woman did not want confrontations with the women of the city because of her lifestyle. And again, you know, all kinds of talk would go around. But now as this woman approaches Jesus, he asks her for a drink of water. Not an uncommon thing except for the fact that any other Jew would not have asked of such a woman. Any other Jew, I mean, hardly would even speak to their own wife or wives, much less a a foreign woman and a Samaritan woman. Most Jewish men, as is the custom and has been for many years, most will not talk to other women as long as their wife is there. And even if their wife wasn't there, they they pretty much reserve the right not to say anything to any other woman. This is just their custom. And they wouldn't even speak to this woman at all. We wouldn't even be around there because they wouldn't have gone to Samaritan or to Samaria in the first place. But notice in verse 9 what it says, And then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, because he asked her for a drink of water. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the, Samar- uh, the Samaritans. Uh, first of all, now understand this as well. I was asked this question uh, after the first service, and the question was, uh, or actually last night, uh, the question was, 
well, how'd she know he was a Jew? And, uh, well, it's, it's really not that hard. I mean, it's, there's some language issues, of course, but more importantly, it's what he looked like. He would have been a, a, a would have been considered an orthodox orthodox Jew of the time. He would have not shaved around his ears, and and if those uh, if you've seen uh, these uh, Hasidic Jews that have the curls around their uh, you know here in, on, on the sides or front or back of their ears, long curls, uh, he was probably wearing those as as well as this little belt that had on the four corners uh, two. Uh, uh, four strands of, 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 of uh, blue-colored uh, uh, strands uh, on the corners of his belt, that would have probably been another indication that he was Jewish. So that, that's, that's just a little information. So, the issue of this verse is the question. How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which, is, uh, which am a woman of Samaria? It was this question, the subject of water, that Jesus took then. And he would use to discuss one of the greatest truths of spiritual life, and that is of living water. And to present the claims of God upon this life, this woman. This was no happenstance. This was no accident. This was something that Jesus knew was going to happen. So he just waited for her. And she came. But isn't it a beautiful thing about the Lord Jesus Christ? How, how he comes, how he touches those that may feel uncomfortable or unloved or untouchable and, and, and in themselves not feeling worth anything. How he comes and touches their lives. I'm so glad that the Lord looks at us differently than man does. Man looks at us in a whole different way, doesn't he? We were there. Sometimes we ourselves judged others. Hopefully we don't anymore. But there have been those times when we've judged others by the way that they look. Or the things that we know about them. And Jesus would speak to this woman again in verse 10. And, and he answered and he said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me to drink. If you knew who I was. If you just knew who I was. And the gift that I have for you. You would have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. In contrast to the water of that well, which I'm sure was good water. They wouldn't go get it if it wasn't good. But if you had known, if you had just known about the gift of God and who it is that asks you for this water, He'd give you better water. Now, to the Jewish mindset, and actually to the mindset of many in that, in that region, including the Samaritans, but to the Jewish mindset specifically, living water was water that was flowing and moving along, such as a creek fed by springs or a lake with both inflow and outflow. 
In fact, the reason why it was called living water was because when they would see the water come up out of, out of the rocks, like, it, like, they, like, like they would see it there in Caesarea Philippi, where, where, where the, the beginning of the Jordan River uh, came, where all the water from Mount Hermon uh, up north would come down and flow under the, under the rocks and all, and, and would just come right out bubbling, and it would come, actually flow bubbling, and they would look at it as, a, you know, the bubbling, and say, hey, man, this, thing, this thing's alive. So they would call it living water. So in contrast to dead water, dead water was, was stagnant water, such as ponds or pools or even some lakes that had no inflow or outflow. They would just sit there, and eventually, at some point, they would get stagnant. But when Jesus spoke of living water, he meant so much more than living streams and, and lakes. Because living water is water that is from God. Living water is of God. It is of Him who is living. It is of Him who always has life and always will have life and will always be living. The water that God gives is the most alive water that there is. No other water, no matter how alive it may be considered, can compare with the living water that is of God. No other water at all. Take, for example, in Psalm 36, verse 9, the psalmist says, For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. I'll refer to that hopefully in a moment if I remember. But, but the point is, for with thee is the fountain of life. The fountain is the picture of water that is bubbling over, that is pouring out. And even the apostles like Paul would talk about a water that was, that was living water, that was just flowing. Uh, Jesus talks about the water that overflows in us, overflows in our cup and goes over. And, and, and overflows all the time. That's the kind of water that God gives. It never runs out. It's never stagnant. It's always good. And it always, by the way, it always satisfies. So living water is a gift. It is the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God, he asks her or tells her, if you knew the gift of God, the word gift there means that it is freely given. It is not earned. It is not deserved. You know, that's something that we as Christians should learn and, 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 and actually should live out in our lives that when we truly give gifts, we're not giving, you know, we're not giving something that is earned. It's something that comes from our heart. You know, if, 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 we, if we receive gifts as something that we've earned, that is not a gift, it's a wage. It's like payment. But that is why Paul tells us in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The gift of God. That's our connection here to understanding where Jesus is going with this woman uh, and the things that he's telling her. These things cannot be earned. This gift cannot be deserved. She would certainly be the first one to say, I, can't, I don't deserve that. Of course not. None of us do. Is there anybody here that deserves the, the water of life that comes from the Lord? Not one of us deserves it. But he's given it to us freely. Think about Isaiah 55 verse 1 where it says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. If you're thirsting in the Spirit, if you, you know, because, uh, because there's a lack of life in your spirit. Remember this, that if before we come to Christ, we are dead spiritually. 
We're dead spiritually. We're alive physically. And physically, we need physical water to satisfy us. But that water, you know, goes away pretty quick in our bodies. And then the next thing we know is we need to have it again. But everyone that thirsteth, come, come ye to the water, and he that has no money, come ye buy and eat. He, uh, come buy and milk, uh, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why is this, this statement uh, the way that it's, it's composed here for us? It's telling us we don't deserve it. We can't pay for it. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. It says come with faith. Come believing. And if you're thirsty... You will be satisfied. And this is the reason. And it's, it's, it's just a, a very indirect tie-in to the, thing that, to the thing that Paul says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 when he says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of works. It's not what we do. Again, we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But it is by grace... Through faith that we're saved. That's the living water that Jesus is talking about. Living water is given by asking for it. And so take note that Jesus said to her, If thou knewest, thou wouldest have asked. If you knew the gift of God, you would have asked for it. The woman had never received living water because she had never known about it and has never asked for it. But it was now available simply by asking. Notice in verse 11 of our text, it says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. In other words, you don't have anything. You don't have a cup. You don't have a bucket. You don't have that leather pouch that was normally used to throw into a well down deep with a rope and then, you know, to pull up to pull up the water that you needed. So she's looking at him, and you know, of course the disciples aren't there. If, if they had one, they took her with them. But that was okay, because Jesus had this planned all along. She says to him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Where, where does this living water come from? You're obviously not going to get it from here, even though that was living water in a sense, because that well was down dug deep down to a... Uh, a, a, a source of water that was actually flowing. So it was an underground kind of stream. And there are many of them, you know, here and there, they, they have to dig and find them, but in, in the Middle East as, as well as in our own uh, backyard. But, but the point is, she says, how are you going to get this? And where does that water come from? And so in verse 12, it says, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us a well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Are you greater than Jacob? And by the way, Jacob was, was, uh, was one of the patriarchs that the Samaritans actually uh, revered. But what Jesus was doing was making it clear that living water is from a person much greater than a religious father. The woman saw clearly that Jesus was making an unusual claim. Uh, she did not yet understand what the claim was, but she knew that he was getting at something. It brought her to curiosity. It brought her to wonder, where are you getting this water and what water are you talking about? And who are you? Who are you? Are you greater than Jacob? This was not, this was not a, a, a question because she was upset at him. This was a question to find out, are you greater than Jacob? Could you possibly be somebody that is greater than this patriarch? 
She noticed again that Jesus didn't have a way to get the water out of that, that well. So she asks, where do you get this living water? And are you greater than one of our patriarchs, Jacob? Was Jesus greater and able to do more than Jacob did? I want you to remember, of course, the words of John the Baptist in chapter 3. The words of John the Baptist concerning our Lord. There in verse 30 where, where he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Look at the next verse, verse 31. John said, He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. He's speaking of Jesus. He's proclaiming Jesus in, in, in effect as divine. And the woman began to recognize something that most people do not. She recognized that Jesus was claiming to be greater than Jacob and to have access to much better water for quenching the thirst of men. And the Lord responded to her in verses 13 and 14. This is all we're going to get to today, but we're going to start here next time soon enough to get deeper into what Jesus was saying. But he answered and he said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. And I'm sure that he pointed to that well. Whoever shall drink of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He says, in this well there's water, but if you drink of that water, you're going to thirst again. Boy, do we know that in the desert. You know, we work so hard sometimes. We go outside, mow our lawns, do all kinds of stuff. And man, the first thing we do is go inside, fill up a big, huge glass of, with, with ice and then, you know, pour water in it, you know. And, and just, and oh boy, it's so cool. And then we throw the ice on top of our heads and, you know, we do all kinds of cool off. And then all of a sudden we just sit there and we say, oh, I'm so satisfied. Yeah, I'm so satisfied for about an hour. Later on, you go put away your mower and your trimmer and all kinds of stuff, and then you say, oh, I'm thirsty again. Well, isn't that just natural? And the day goes by, and then, you know, you're drinking water all day because you're supposed to drink so many glasses of water. Or else, unless you get on the Internet and they tell you, no, water's not good for you, and I'm thinking, I don't know, I better just, you know, what is it, not good, good, I don't know. Well, the Bible tells us that we need water, you know, so we ought to drink it, but... But the point is, we'll always thirst again for it. We'll always want the next day. We go through the same thing. We work on a daily uh, uh, job out in the, you know, whatever it is that we're doing. We're always in the heat. Well, what are we going to do? Got to take take our little thermos of water, you know. There we drink the water, but then you got to fill it again. Why? Because you're going to thirst again. So Jesus was comparing the physical with the spiritual, and he was saying. That material things will never satisfy us even though we think they will. You see, how often have we said, boy, if I only had such and such, that is all that I need. 
If I just had such and such. So you get such and such. And you pay whatever exorbitant price for such and such. And then you get it and then you use it and you say, I like such and such until the new and improved such and such comes out in the paper. Don't read the ads today on Sunday paper because you'll just say, oh, there's the more new improved such and such. I got to go get it. And then you go get the such and such again and then you know you give away the other such and such which is perfectly good for someone else but then you got the more improved such and such and then you go on with that for another year until you get the new such and such that comes out and I mean that's like a smartphone or it could be a computer or uh, like some of us you know we got we got to get the latest in in the new backpack that fills everything up and, uh, and and you know I get the backpack and then I say oh, okay this is the backpack for me yes until I see that I don't have enough room, so now I gotta get a big one. You know, see? So we're never satisfied. We keep going, we keep looking, we keep wanting. And then, so, so, what happened? You still needed something else. The thing you thought would satisfy didn't. Your latest and greatest computer you just bought last week is outdated already. You see, the worldly realm can never satisfy the thirsty soul. Even though we keep trying to accomplish that with worldly things. Jesus is speaking of drinking drinking in the Spirit of life, the Spirit of God that changes us from within. That is where true satisfaction and lasting satisfaction is found. We're going to build upon this later. But I, but I, want, but I want you to see that there was an understanding that they could have had. And we'll see it later on in the Gospel of John as well. But in the Feast of Tabernacles, this is a really interesting thing, in the Feast of Tabernacles, They would go through the days of the feast, rejoicing in the Lord and all. And, you know, they build the booths and, you know, the, the idea, of course, is, you know, dwelling, you know, uh, with, with the Lord, you know, temporary places here, but in heaven we'll be there forever and whatnot. But part of the ritual of the last day of, of the feast of tabernacles is that some of the people from the temple would go down to the pool of Siloam. They would take a big vessel and they would put, put that vessel in the water. And they would fill up the vessel with water. And then they would carry it and the people would be following and they'd be praising God and shouting and doing all kinds of stuff. But then when they would get to the temple, they would pour that water out. They would pour the water actually on, on, on the altar. And you know what the people would say? Let, let me read it to you. It comes from Isaiah chapter 12. It's not going to be up here. So you have to look in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 12. I'm going to read the first three verses, but it's the third verse that they, the people would actually shout out when the water was being poured. And Isaiah 12 verse 1 says, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. Notice the connection with salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. 
But it's verse 3 that is what is cried out by the people at, at, at the, uh, when the water was poured out. And it is, therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. With joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Water now becomes, and that is living water becomes now so crucial for us to understand the importance of that. In John chapter 6, I'm going to do this very quickly because we're going to get to the table of communion here. But in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. Now that's, we understand that. That's pretty clear. He that hungers, or he that, he that cometh to me shall never hunger. I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you shall never hunger. But then he says this, And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. So there is the inclusion of water, the understanding of living water in his statement. Later on, Jesus does in the days of of the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7 of John, make reference to that very same thing. When it says in the last day, this is John 7 verses 37 to 39, the last day, that great day of the feast, speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood in Christ saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Certainly, probably at the very time when they're getting ready to pour the water out. He says, if any man thirst, let him come to me. And drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But then he says, John says, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. But you see the connection now with spiritual life. The connection now with life that is eternal because it is living water that flows continuously and never runs out. So the effect of that is going to be seen in our lives. It is going to be seen in the fruit of the Spirit. Because if we have the waters of the, 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 the fountains of living water coming forth out of us, then what comes out of us? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 26, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there's no law. But then in the next verse, verse 24, it says, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Folks, this is crucial for us to understand this. They that are Christ's, are you Christ's today? Are you His today? Because if you are, it indicates that you have died to yourself. Your affections, it says, you have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Everything that was desirous of the things in this life that could never give you satisfaction, that has been crucified. So that you would be alive in the Spirit of God. 
So if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. That is the evidence of that living water in our lives. The evidence. If you, if, if, if you live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. And then he gives one, just one example of what we're to do or not do. Let us not be desirous of vain glory. Let's not desire glory for ourselves. Because if we do, it's just wasted and useless glory. Provoking one another, which is challenging one another harshly. Or envying one another, desiring what everybody else has. That's, that's just not the spirit. All of that has been crucified in the flesh. And maybe we can understand better Galatians 2 verse 20. Going back a few pages there. Where Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, it's a completely different kind of life that Jesus was offering this woman through this example of living water. Now the question is, are you filled from the fountain of life that is Christ? Are you filled with His living water? Are you alive today, spiritually, because of what Christ has done for you and what Christ has given to you, the gift of eternal life through Jesus. Are you filled? Are you filled? I'm asking, are you filled? Are you filled with the joy of the Lord? Do you know that if you're filled with the joy of the Lord, then you're filled with the joy of the Lord that is our strength? That's our strength. Because that water never runs out. That water never runs out. That's how much God loves you. That when He gives you His gift, He gives you a gift that will last you forever. What a joy. Let's rejoice in that today by taking this bread and this cup that is before us here today. And thanking the Lord for the life that we have in Christ Jesus. And if we're struggling with our lives like this woman of Samaria, this is the time now to say, Lord, I realize that the things of this life cannot satisfy me. So I need you to satisfy me. Because if you are who you say you are, then you're the one who gives life. And you are the one who gives us living water. The water that bubbles over in our lives. I need that. Receive it today. Let's pray. Let's have the ushers come up. The servers. Father, we are so thankful, so blessed to have this opportunity today to rejoice in the knowledge of the truth of your word and what Christ has given to us 
of himself as he gave of himself on the cross as he shed his blood for our forgiveness how rich Lord God the examples in your word are to us and we can stand fully upon this truth today I pray Father that you will help us to understand this more and more as we learn more and more later but we are Lord here at your at your mercy but how great a mercy it is we ask you Father to have your way with our hearts right now as we focus our attention not on ourselves so much as on you who loved us with an everlasting love and continues to search our hearts out so that we might live for you in glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen. In studying the uh, book of Revelation, we know that John, the same John who wrote the gospel, was, was given many years of life to receive this particular revelation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And prophetically speaking, you know, we, we have this event coming, you know, which is the Lord Jesus coming for his saints and then later coming to establish his kingdom in, in Jerusalem. But all of this as, as a message to not only the church but to everyone is not without its its encouragement and its hope. I say that because at the end of the book of Revelation, and I don't mean the last chapter, which is chapter 22, but in chapter 21, where John is, is speaking forth this, this vision of the new heaven and the new earth, and he says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Write, so that this message gets out to everyone. But then in verse 6 of that chapter, he says, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Even to the very end, the hope that there is life that can be received from God is still given to all. He who is thirsty, come. And the water of the, the fountain of the water of life will be given to you freely. That is so important for us to realize that God is still on the throne but wanting others to come to Him. And in the days and times in which we live, the responsibility for taking that message is in us. It is our responsibility. It is our privilege to serve the Lord, but it is our responsibility to take this message.
And it begins with our understanding that Jesus Christ died on the cross on behalf of us for our sins. And he shed his blood as that which was to be spilled on the altar to indicate that his blood was shed to forgive sins, our sins. So with that in mind, let us pray and let us partake of this together. Father, thank you for this bread and for this cup. We thank you for the bread that was given, Lord God, to us, a symbol of and a, re- a reminder that you are the provider of everything that is good, everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we thank you for this bread that represents the body of our Lord Jesus that was broken for us. We thank you for this cup, Lord God, that, uh, that contains juice, but the juice is, is, is really just a, a, a symbol of, of, of the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled on our behalf to forgive us of our sins, to pay that price that we needed to have paid because the blood of bulls and goats wouldn't have done it and even our own blood would not have been able to have accomplished what the blood of Jesus, the blood of the pure Lamb of God, accomplished on our behalf. And so today we thank you for this cup and for this bread. And and Lord, we thank you, Lord God, that we can partake of it together and doing so together, Lord. Bind us together in the love of Jesus Christ until the day of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Shall we partake of the bread first? And now, let us partake of the cup. Praise the Lord. Shall we stand? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May you have a wonderful, wonderful week in the Lord. Spend that time with him. Have those divine appointments with the Lord every day. Let him speak to you. Let him encourage you. Let him build you up. Let him strengthen you. Let him edify you. Let him do all his work in you so that you can go forth and serve him with joy and with gladness tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. Have a, have a good day in fellowship one with another if you're staying with the cafe. And, and don't forget this Friday, the uh, uh, Grace and Peace, Out, Peace Outreach at uh, Grace Gardens. Uh, the information is in the bulletin. So hope to see many of you there. God bless you. And let's rejoice in the Lord as we leave here today.